All right, we are in the Corinthian letters. Boy, I never get here this time of the hour. <laughs> uh, we're in the Corinthian letters. We're actually in 2 Corinthians, beginning at chapter 4. We're, we're entering into the section of this letter that uh, I really, um, really appreciate and think is not um, as well known as most of the other aspects of the Corinthian letters. So, uh, important for us to uh, pay attention to it. Uh, Paul began the letter by explaining why he didn't visit them as expected. He had sent the first letter as a test to see if they would obey him in dealing with a problem within the church. They passed the test. And now he wants them to be comforted. And he wants them to be the basis of his joy and him the basis of theirs. So he explains that they're the credentials of his ministry and his apostleship as he brought them the gospel. And, and he said, it's more than that. You are a letter of Christ that is cared for by him, uh, but written by God uh, and read by all men. So he claims that he and the other apostles are ministers of the new covenant, spoken of by the prophets, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Um, which is about the spirit and not the letter. He says the letter kills, but the spirit makes alive. Um, and so now this new covenant really has the same commandments, but it's energized by the spirit to overcome the flesh. Now, this is a terribly misunderstood uh, doctrine. I want to give you an example. I've been thinking, I'm always trying to figure out how do you explain to people the relationship of the Sinai covenant and the new covenant related to the commandments. Because the general notion of replacement theology and a lot of evangelicals today is that the commandments were done away with at the cross and now we're under grace. Uh, and that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that the reason the commandments can't be fulfilled is that there's a problem, and it's not with the commandments. It's with us. We're the problem. And Christ died to take, a, take care of the law of sin and death that's in our members so that we could fulfill and obey the commandments. Now, we can't fully do that now, because we're still in these bodies, what Paul calls these bodies, <coughs> well, here we go, <laughs> these bodies of death. So here's my new example. Let's see if it works for you. Uh, let's say I have a house, and the house is the covenant, and the house is too small and not configured well for the furniture that's in it. The furniture is the commandments. So the commandments are in the house, the furniture is in the house, but it's, over, it's large furniture and the house is small. The rooms are not configured for the furniture, so the furniture is kind of stacked up in a corner and, and you, you have to move furniture to get to the other furniture. Uh, and you say, gee, there's something wrong here. And most people will say, it's the furniture. It's not the furniture, it's the house. There's a new house coming, the resurrected body. And in that resurrected body and in that kingdom, that furniture is going to fit beautifully. 
It's going to sit very well. It's going to look great. It's going to be functional. It's going to be comfortable. It's going to be what it should be. The problem is not the furniture, the commandments. The problem is the package of the house. The flesh at this time, but with the resurrected body, we will have a different context for that. I hope that helps a little better because the tendency is for us to think that the problem is the commandments. And as I often say, if you don't like the commandments of God, you're going to hate the kingdom because they're going to be in full operation in the kingdom. So, Paul's contrasting the initial covenant at Sinai with the new covenant of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. It's not a replacement of the commandments, but a fixing of the heart which is where the commandments belong. I will put my commandments, my laws in their hearts. Uh, And so he says that when people read the scriptures now, and he's particularly talking about Israel, but it extends to all natural people, there is a veil that kind of blocks their understanding that is taken away by the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Liberty, And Paul says, as we now look at the scriptures, we look at them as if they are a reflection of the glory of God, uh, and we see them uh, in the glory of God that is transforming us from glory to glory. And that's kind of where we ended up last time. So, I want to pick it up at uh, chapter 4 now. Paul says then, therefore, because these things are true, Since we have this ministry, he's talking about he and Barnabas and and Silas and and those who are with him, the apostles. Since we have this ministry, because we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We don't become discouraged. Now he's going to tell why someone might become discouraged. Life is tough. Okay, There are problems. So he's going to talk about that. He says, but we don't lose heart because we've received this ministry, and we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So, in this first two verses, Paul says, because the new covenant is more glorious and it will not fade, we don't lose heart in the proclamation Of this good news. Because what we have done is we've renounced the hidden things of shame. What are those hidden things of shame? He says, first of all, we don't walk in craftiness. Now, this word cleverness, craftiness, is about the idea of a false wisdom, a pseudo-wisdom, or a manipulation. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, what he says, When we came to you, brethren, we didn't come with enticing words of man's wisdom. Have you noticed that most of the people who are trying to proclaim the gospel now are trying to come up with clever ways and answers that will make people convinced of it? It doesn't take that veil away. That veil away is the Spirit of God and the Word of God working together for people to humble themselves before God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the faith then takes heart in the person 
And they are not convinced by being clever. They're not convinced by being manipulated. They're not convinced by little slogans. They're convinced by faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God when it is quickened by the Spirit of God. So our, what Paul says, we didn't come uh, trying to be clever in a human sense. Secondly, he says, we, we haven't adulterated or corrupted the Word of God. We haven't watered down the word. We haven't uh, compromised the truth. We haven't corrupted the truth. Instead, he says, we're living that truth in public so that we can present ourselves to the conscience of other men. They see a life that is being transformed, a life that is changing, a life that is filled with hope, even in the midst of difficulties, so that people say, whatever is going on there, I want some of that. So that we're ready then, as Paul will say to Timothy, to give an answer to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that's in you. When the world is going through trouble, and they can't cope, and we're going through difficulty, and we have hope, There is something there that lets them know that there is a difference between them and us. And that is the Word and the Spirit of God. So, in in verses 3 and 4 he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, he's using that term again, that idea that when when we do tell them straightforward what the truth is, and we live the truth, they still don't get it. He says, It is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So he says, even in that there are people who don't get it. Those natural men, the spirit of God is not quickening them. The Word of God is there. They have the Word, they don't have the Spirit. And the Word that they have is taken. Now this brings us back to a passage that I'm sure you're very familiar with. There are several versions of it. The one I want you to look at is in Mark chapter 4. I'm going to have a hay fever attack here while we're doing this. So this will be fun. In Mark chapter 4, we have the parable of the sower. You guys all know this passage pretty well. The man uh, sows the seed on the, uh, on the roadway, uh, and the birds come and take it away. Uh, he sows some in rocky ground. Um, he sows some in thorny areas, and he sows some in fertile areas. And the response is different in the first three than in the last one. Even the last one has differing fruitfulness. The idea here is that the birds that take it away is Satan. Satan takes the word out of the heart. That veiling is there and then the word that's there makes no, there's no conception of the truth. Because the Word alone will not change somebody. The Word and the Spirit work together. And the Spirit is not there. 
and the word is there, and even that which is there is taken by Satan. I want you to keep this in mind because uh, Paul's going to refer to the other soils in this in this chapter as well. But back to Corinthians. So he says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbeliever so that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now he says, we preach this, uh, not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. The God who said, let there be light. Excuse me. Oh, I wish they'd find a total cure for hay fever. <laughs> the God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, he's arguing that we're not preaching ourselves. Yes, we're living this faith in front of people, but we're not saying, look at me. We're saying, look at the light that is in our life. It's not coming from us. Now that makes me rethink my understanding of the next few verses. Beginning at verse 7. Paul says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not ourselves. And he's going to talk about that in a context of what's going on. Now, my visual image of this treasure in earthen vessels has always been uh, that pot in the back. If you look back in the corner, you see that pottery that was that's a replica of the Dead Sea Scrolls in which the scriptures were found in. We have the Word of God, in a sense, in this fragile pot. And that's always been my mindset. And I was looking at some of the uh, artifacts and stuff I have at the house, and I have a small little lamp from the time of uh, the Roman period that I got when I was in Israel. They're very small, and most of you have probably seen them, these little clay lamps. And in those lamps, the oil is poured, and then the light is put on there, and the truth is, the light is coming from the wick and the oil, not from the lamp. And I think that's a better understanding. That he's talking about the light of God that shines in our life before other men, that they may see it and read that, and they read the behavior by the light of God's Word and God's Spirit, unless they're veiled. And the idea is, you don't go, wow, that's a great lamp. Well, we do, because we're fashion conscious. But in, in those days, the issue was, that was do, the light is good there, right? We can use that light. So I think that his statement about we have this treasure of the light of the glory of God, the gospel, in this 
lamp that is our body. And that is a fragile thing. He's going to talk about it in this chapter, and then in the next chapter he's going to talk about this tabernacle, this house, this body being destroyed. Because we have to go through death to get to resurrection. So, in this context he says these words. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from us. We are afflicted on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for, for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus might be manifest in our mortal flesh. Now, Paul is saying, God's intent is for the gospel to be carried in these weakened vessels. So that the light of God will be seen. This is what Paul understands when he asks God to take away that thorn in the flesh. That we'll talk about later. And God said, no, my strength is made perfect in weakness. We are broken vessels. We are damaged by sin. All the more does the glory of the gospel shine. Because it's clear it's not us. That's why when we have done good deeds... And people praise us. We are to say as Jesus taught us. We are nothing more than unprofitable servants. Who have done what we have been told to do. As the reading we had before. What am I giving to God. That he hasn't given to me. So why am I acting as if it's a big thing that I'm giving him. Right. The reality is. He is the one who sustains us. So. Paul says God's intent is that the greatness of the gospel's power will be seen that it's God and not man. So now he describes these weaknesses. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. This statement, afflicted, is a word that means pressured. Now, you can probably identify with some pressure. If you've lived at all for any time, right? He says, we are pressured. We are being pushed in. We are being pressed, but we're not crushed. We're holding our own. Why are we holding our own? Because the Spirit of God and the Word of God is holding us. We're not, we're not, it's not our own integrity that's keeping us from crushing. It's God's Spirit And God's word. He says we are perplexed. That means we're unsure and uncertain. Boy life. You think you've got it figured out. And it throws you a curve. Every time you think. uh, I've quit lying to myself. I used to tell myself. At this point things will get better. I I don't believe that anymore. You know. uh, People used to say cheer up. It could get worse. Well you cheer up. 
And it gets worse, right? There's something about that. So he says, we're perplexed, but we're not despairing. Everything is crumbling around us, but we have hope. And our hope is not in this life. It's beyond this life. And so we're not crushed. We're not without hope. And then he says, we're struck down. Now this is an interesting word. Because it can mean two things. It can mean struck down as if you've fallen. But not fallen so as to fail, you're able to get back up. Or it can mean struck down in death. Well, isn't that the end? No! That's the hope of resurrection. Nothing in this life can ultimately separate us from God's love. And therefore, none of those things are worthy to be compared to the glory that's revealed in us, as the Apostle says in another place. So, these things are our participation in the suffering death of Jesus, so that the resurrection can also be manifest in us. Now the problem is, we live in a Hollywood TV sense. We have a feeling that suffering should be for a half an hour with commercials, and in the second half an hour, everything gets solved. Or if it's a movie, in two hours, we go through the problems, and at the end, it's all, it's all better, right? That's not really the way it works. God's going to give us 70 or 80 years of the struggle and an eternity of it fixed. That's why Paul says it's not worthy to be compared. But when you're on the road and you think, I got a few more years of this, right? When is this going to end? It's going to end when, when this body ends for you. But that's not going to be the end. The resurrection is part of that. And so in Romans 8, we all know this passage. The scripture says, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Always love the, I love the passages about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. It's almost as if we're his pet sheep. But what does a shepherd do with sheep? Once they've reached a certain point, they're killed. They're raised to be eaten. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Not just to be eaten for food, but as a sacrifice. Our suffering is part of a sacrifice to the Lord. Now here's where Catholic theology has it all over us. Catholics understand, those who have been trained well, that there is a theology of taking your suffering and offering that up to the Lord. Knowing that even here, I am not forsaken. This is not the forsakenness of the Lord. This is the sacrifice that I can offer to Him my suffering with Christ in anticipation of my resurrection with Christ. That gives perspective, which is what Paul's about to do. He's about to say, we need eternal perspective, not a temporal perspective. The temporal perspective is awful. So, these things are not proof 
that our trust is false, they are proof that God is in us because we endure through them, even to the point of death, which is what Jesus did. He humbled himself even to the point of death. So now Paul says a verse that has always bothered me. Uh, as I've contemplated ministry. And that is, he says, So death works in us, but life in you. I don't like that verse. This goes back to what Linda asked last week in the Q&A. In some sense, those who are in leadership and those who are in more public ministry are given a greater experience of suffering. And those who are in the congregations and functioning in the body in that sense are given a little more of the life and the blessing that's going on in this life. So Paul says, death is working in us. We're going through this. He's going to list it later. But life in you. And that verse always bothered me because it sounds so black and white. It's not. At the time that Paul's writing, he's going through terrible times. And there were times when he was not. And there are times when people in congregations are doing great and there are times when it's not. And this is... Back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We are to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And we are to mourn with those who are mourning. In other words, this is an uneven process. But whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Whether death is working in us or life is working in us, we are the Lord's. And that's why that verse by itself needs the next verse. So he says this. So death works in us, but life in you, but having the same spirit of faith. Okay, It's the same spirit of faith when you're going through good times as you have when you're going through bad times. Okay, Now, light shines brighter in darkness, but it shines in light. It's the same light. In either case. So he says. So we have the same spirit of faith. According to what is written. I believed. Therefore I spoke. We also believe. And therefore we speak. Now this is a quote. From Psalms. I want you to look at it. Psalm 116. I love this psalm, but I never thought of it in the context that Paul's quoting it. Psalm 116, he's quoting verse 10. I want to back up a little bit. Uh, Verse 6 says... 
The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have been rescued from death. My eyes from tears. My feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my alarm, all men are liars. He's putting this into perspective. The perspective is, when did he say, I believe? Did he say it when everything was going good? He said it in his affliction. The statement of faith made in affliction is the strongest one. And you know that. Job, though God slay me, I will trust him. For then I shall come forth. The idea is that we maintain the same spirit of faith in the good times and the bad times, but it's in the bad times that it shows forth the most. Our tendency sometimes is not to make a profession of faith when everything's going bad. I'll make it when it's good. I'll testify when it's good. But we make statements of faith in the midst of trouble in the midst of affliction, because it's the same spirit of faith in either case. So back to Second uh, Corinthians. So Paul says, I believe, therefore I spoke, was in my affliction. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Why? Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus... And present us with you. Those whom life is working in. Right? So he says. All things are for your sake. So that the grace which is spreading to more and more people. May cause the giving of thanks. To abound to the glory of God. He says I get it. Whether we're going through difficult times or going through good times, it's all in the process of God. We maintain our statement of faith in all of that. Therefore, he says, we do not lose heart. For though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. I always think of J. Vernon McGee with this verse. Uh, and the other verse that says, In these bodies we groan, waiting for the resurrection. One day he was walking up to his study. His study was on the second floor. And as he walked up the, the stairs, he's groaning. Oh, man. Oh, his wife says, Stop making that noise. Stop groaning. He says, It's scriptural. In these bodies we groan. <laughs> you know, So, it's okay for me to do it. There is groaning, but, but there is hope. So our outer man is decaying. The only part of us that suffers is the outer man. The inner man is being renewed day by day. Now, we get focused on our outer man way too much. And it drags us down. And we begin to lose our hope. That's why the Writer to the Hebrews says, fix your faith on Jesus. Look upon Him, right? 
Love that old song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Right? So he says, our outer man is perishing. It's coming apart. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, 80 years or so, <laughs> light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now that's either true or that's not true. I believe it's true. But our focus has to be on that. So he says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our faith has to look beyond the circumstances of this life. Not so that these circumstances will change. Catch this. Okay? That's the faith movement. If I faith and I look beyond it, God will fix these things. That's not the promise. The promise is, if I look at the eternal things, and I focus on eternal things, these won't matter. They become light, momentary afflictions. We've all had the experience where we were very sick or suffering in some way. And something caught our attention. And when that thing caught your attention, you lost attention of your suffering. And for a moment, that suffering became light. That's the eyes of faith. That's what we have to do. We have to focus on the eternal things. And we have to do that day by day. That inner man has to be renewed day by day. And we have to focus on that and not on the external things. Because that's really what's going to give us perspective. So we trust in resurrection. Well, that's good. Okay. The problem with resurrection... There's only one way to get to resurrection. You gots to die. Right? I mean, there's no way around that. Uh, that old state, funny statement, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Right? The reality is, resurrection should tell us you're going to die. But we will be raised together with those who have wept and those who have rejoiced, and we will all give thanks to God, glorifying Him. So we don't become discouraged, even by our suffering, because that outer man's perishing is a light affliction compared to the renewal of the inner man and the hope that we have. We keep our sight on the eternal because if we lose perspective, we become overwhelmed by the suffering and blinded to the hope that's in us. And the best example of that probably is Peter 
walking on the water and then looks at the waves and says, what am I doing here? And then sinks, right? I love that because he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus doesn't say, you don't have enough faith? Drown. He grabs him and he says, O ye of little faith. Every time Jesus says that in the New Testament, he works a miracle. Which means that the one who has faith doesn't get the miracle. They hold on through the suffering. And the weak one he gives the miracle to, lest they perish. Now you know this, when you were a little kid, your parents do everything for you. And as you begin to grow, they begin to expect you to do some of these things for yourself and trust them. And our Father does the same thing with us. So, this being blinded or suffering by getting your eyes on the circumstances will choke the word of God in you. Remember I talked about the parable of the sower? One, they never get it. The God of this world just takes it away from That's That's not what we need to be concerned with. But the other two soils, one is the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches making this life comfortable pulls them away from the word and it's not productive. And the other one is they become persecuted and because of the offense of the word and not wanting to be persecuted, they give up. But those who keep their eternal perspective become fruitful. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. The fact that that's variable means that some, sometimes there's wobbling in our life. But the certainty of the, of the eternal and our focus on the eternal can make the sufferings of this life seem lighter. Because it is, after all, a perspective. So the key is for us to stay focused on the kingdom to come and the salvation that will be shared when the Lord returns. And to count the suffering as reward that will come. Jesus said to his disciples, no one has given anything up or suffered anything that they won't receive eternal life and additional in the kingdom. So you are not being ripped off by your suffering. You are, in some sense, being promised a greater resurrection. That's the passage in Hebrews. I want to mention that at the end here. The writer to the Hebrews says, By faith, these people conquered uh, lands, they received their dead back. They, they were healed. They escaped. And others refused the resurrection to have a better resurrection. These were sawn in two. They lived in caves. Of whom the world is not worthy. There will be some of our brothers who will 
do fairly well through their life. And there will be some of us who will suffer. We will rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We will weep with those who weep. But we will have the same spirit of faith saying, I believe, therefore I speak. I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. And so, uh, we use daily renewal for our assurance. Now, what Paul's going to do in the next section, and I'm done, is he's going to give us that ultimate eternal perspective related to life and death and resurrection. So he's focused on that. Because isn't that the gospel? Jesus suffered. He died. And he rose. We have the same path. Let's pray.